Hello and welcome to the Napoleonic Wars pod. Today is quite a special day for me because I'm interviewing the historian that frankly I wish I'd been. Now that might sound like high praise but bear in mind it's coming from me folks so it probably means a heck of a lot less than it would coming from somebody who's actually esteemed. I am talking to Gavin Daly. He's a senior lecturer in European history at the University of Tasmania. He's the author of The British Soldier in the Peninsular War, Encounters with Spain and Portugal, 1808 to 1814, which does this kind of deep dive into soldiers' memoirs and does a fascinating job of kind of picking out the key themes across them. But recently he authored Storm and Sack, British Sieges, Violence, and the Laws of War in the Napoleonic Era, 1799 to 1815. So we are going to go into a deep dive analysis of the British sieges, what worked, what really didn't, um, the murky areas, and yes, there's probably going to be some crime and punishment stuff because it's sieges, so brace yourselves for that, um, because hey, why break the tradition of a lifetime on this show and not squeeze in a conversation about discipline when I can? Gavin, welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. How are you doing? I'm well, and thank you so much for uh, having me on. Fabulous. Absolute pleasure. The only sadness I have is that it's taken me this long to make it happen. Um, But I suspect you may end up coming back. It'll be worth the wait. I don't know. I can't promise. but uh... Oh, it absolutely will. I mean, like I say, you have a habit of of doing titles that I look at and think, Gerat, that's the book that I wanted to write in sort of five years' time. Um, so I think we're going to kind of have a lot of common ground in terms of our interests here. Um, and I've been using, there are a couple of books that have come out recently that I'm describing as important. This is one of them. Um, but I, I want, for me, that that's a very easy thing to say because I've got a massive interest in siege warfare. For our listeners mm. who perhaps aren't quite so familiar, I think it's worth us just sort of pausing and thinking about where we are with our understanding with sieges because it always feels to me like we have this sort of slight leaning towards being an apologist for some of the conduct certainly prior to this in the historiography what's your reading of the situation Hmm. in terms of apologizing for british conduct in the yeah absolutely yeah um yes well I, i mean to put it the broad context here is that sieges is largely the, the focus on sieges in the peninsula has largely been operational histories and great traditions of that, um, and much less so on what transpired after the after the storming. And my interest came from that the previous book that I wrote on British soldiers in the peninsula war encounters with Spain and Portugal, where I approach sieges through the lens of what this may reveal about attitudes and practices towards Spanish civilians. And then that opened up the broader context of plunder and, and atrocity. So I entered, I entered the siege space, if you like, through that, through that lens, and then tried to, to broaden and illuminate that aspect of the sieges that little, relatively little had been had been done. And only in, in recent years has there been more work done on that. And that's not something unique to the Peninsula War. That, that's a much broader phenomenon within the study of siege warfare generally, that there's been very little focus on sack as a, as a subject in its own right, uh, that there tends to be uh, a few quotes thrown in about the horrors of the sack and, with, and an assumption that we all know what a sack is and what happens. So the sack almost becomes a sort of timeless recurring phenomena 
And that's true up to a point because the laws of war facilitate and legitimise that violence. But what I began to realise was that not all sacks are exactly the same, that they have their own dynamics um, and not just the sacks, but the treatment of garrisons during the and after the storming operation. So I became quite interested in dissecting, as you say, a deep, taking a deep dive into the anatomy, if you like, of the plunder and the violence, but also then taking a backward step to see why, how it is that we get to that position in the first place in terms of laws of war and rituals and why you don't have uh, the more conventional surrender rituals taking place with the French in, in the peninsula. So that was my... Um, that was my initial approach. And then it broadened out into trying to contextualise and locate those sieges more broadly within the Napoleonic Wars, then more broadly again within the long 18th century in terms of both siege warfare and the history of Saxe. And then I thought I might as well throw in India and South America as well to look at some important global context to help put what is transpiring in Spain into that broader, um, for the, the broader issue around uh, British siege warfare in South America and Montevideo, and then uh, the, the, the sieges in uh, in India, particularly Seringapatam and uh, those that took place in the uh, the Maratha campaign in eighteen o three, and so it it was then about looking at the, as you say, that 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 sense that sense of shame around around the, the British sacks and understanding why that's there, because increasingly it became apparent to me, as it has to some other historians, that the, the, the level of violence in these sacks, the level of atrocity, is not at the scale that it has generally been seen as, and certainly not comparable to some of the worst sack atrocities in early modern European history. And so then it became a question of why is there such an outpouring of, of moral outrage and a sense of shame and, and disgrace? And so the sort of dynamic or tension in the book ultimately was about tracing that tension between customary laws of war that gave license to this violence, but then a growing moral and sentimental and humanitarian repugnance at that at that very violent. So that tension lies very much at the heart of the book. I could talk to you for about four hours on all of these topics. I genuinely could. As, <laughs> as you're saying this, I'm almost thinking, do I go along with this episode and just split it into two? And we do a, a very long recording, but that would be deeply unfair of you, uh, on, on you. Um, <laughs> so I, I will try to restrain myself. Um, okay, let's... I'm so tempted to rabbit hole, but let's let's stay with what we planned yeah. originally for the moment, yeah. because yeah. I think a lot of the rabbit hole will ha rabbit holing will happen when we um, we we talk about specific examples. You talked there about theory, which is a lovely little segue. Thanks for setting that up for me. Um, in terms of the theory of war and sieges, and I often feel that there's been a lot of misunderstanding here, um, and a lot of sort of how do I put this sort of gently? There's been a sort of looseness with how people talk about the rules of war there's sort of these comments seem to sort of be thrown in that oh well it was okay because that's what the laws of war said and nobody sort of actually pauses to go well this is the breakdown of the laws of war and the theories of war and what what you should and shouldn't be able to do with sieges um 
so help us out here you know what do the rules and the conventions and rules is obviously a sort of thing to to put in air quotes there um yeah. what what should happen when it comes to sieges so firstly these are by far the most regulated etiquette bound ritualized and rule bound forms of of conventional warfare in the early modern in the early modern period and there's an inherent set of traditions and conventions and rules of war that evolve from the classical period onwards within the Western tradition and the medieval period. And we're still very much bound by those in the in the in the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, not with, notwithstanding some uh, changes over time. But by the time we get to the 18th century, there are quite clear expectations around uh, summoning and capitulation rituals around around sieges. And there's a sense of reciprocity. There's a common um, understanding about these wars between belligerent European European states and gov town governors and, and besieging generals. So they're all on the same page. Um, and for our purposes here with, with SAC, if, the, if you had not surrendered, if the governor had not surrendered, by the time it got to a practicable breach in the walls, that is a, a, a breach large enough for storming parties to enter, and it may end, it may have ended earlier because of bombardment or other strategies, but if it got to that conventional ending, that's the key threshold moment whereby there's typically a final summons that's offered to the to the governor. And if the garrison, sometimes in, in uh, consultation with the municipal authorities, uh, refuses to surrender and begin to negotiate capitulation terms at that point in time, then uh, rather dark laws of war kick in that um, you don't really see in any other conventional form of warfare, whereby it then becomes legitimate under customary laws of war, whether it was morals, another matter, but it becomes legitimate under centuries-old customary laws of war to both put the garrison to the sword to issue no quarter if you're forced to storm, and also then to sack the town, which invariably involved plunder and violence against civilians. And these laws of war were grounded in a number of traditional justifications that they this was a form of vengeance on the part of the besieging force because they had incurred typically a heavy loss of life or a needless loss of life in, in, in the storming operation, which was an incredibly hazardous operation. Uh, there was then also a sort of political dimension to this as an exemplary punishment to warn other towns, so an important punitive exemplary political dimension to it so that other towns may then surrender. Uh, at the point of a practical breach or not, or, or, or beforehand. And then also the question of motivation and incentivization for troops in braving the storm. So a, a reward motivation. So they were very much the, the traditional justification for, um, for what then transpired once soldiers passed through the breaches. Yeah, you you tapped into two really important things. Certainly, that I bore my listeners with a, a lot on this show. When it that that culture of reward, you know, if, for the soldier, there there is this assumption of being able to go out onto a battlefield and take what you can find. Now, 
that's one thing um, when you're on a battlefield littered with your enemy dead, because if you've won the battle and you occupy the field, that there's that there's an ease to that. Um, obviously, the when people have passed away, they aren't going to object to you taking their their former possessions. Um, but then when you put that into a siege setting where you do still have civilians in the town where there are living people who aren't injured, they are not your enemy in the case of Britain, it becomes far more problematic. Uh, and it's very, mm. very interesting to see how that culture isn't just, as I've said in the past, apologies, folks, but it's not just amongst the rank and file. The officers share that kind of notion that I can take things. Um, Le Mesurier offers a really interesting example. So Le Mesurier is an officer, I forget which regiment he's in. Um, I believe you cite him in, in the book, actually. Um, and he's talking about um, having taken some, uh, I believe it's some plays, the the transcripts of some some plays. Uh, during one of the sieges and he writes home to his family as if this is completely normal it's very clear although we don't have the family's response it's very clear from his subsequent letter to his family where he's saying you don't understand this is this is just what happens it's entirely acceptable that there is this kind of disparity in the culture and sort of what those back home think is okay is markedly different from what those on the front line seem to think is okay um you also talked about deterrence there which is a well you framed it slightly differently but i i think i guess i kind of look at things a lot from a perspective of deterrence this idea that if you do this once it should then deter others from resisting to the point of, of awaiting the storming um and we'll yeah. talk more about sort of napoleon's role within this sort of arguable change in, in philosophy that we see but i'm just curious about whether or not that deterrence notion works are there examples prior to this period that almost sort of have this fable like um aura about them you know remember the sacking of whatever it might be i mean we talk a lot about Drogheda, um yeah but that's yeah. That's, that's a very sort of early modern example um yeah. so i'm curious yeah. whether that kind of that memory persists and people sort of say well actually no we we should surrender when the breach is practical practicable because we don't want a repeat of insert incident here yeah uh, and certainly Cromwell in Ireland comes up a number of times on that on that note um and Alba as well the Duke of Alba in um in in the Netherlands um it is an interesting it is an interesting question I'm not sure whether there's been much research done on that aspect of so certainly there's a collective memory with sack and it becomes bound up with the the, the identity of that town as in terms of victimization um but whether whether um i can't think of any examples in the napoleonic period where that where there's a clear link between a, 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 a sacking because there aren't that many sacks Anyway, that's the other that's the other thing. The Peninsular War is very unusual in that sense in the Napoleonic in the Napoleonic Wars in terms of regular sieges. There's lots of sacking in terms of con, uh, um, uh, unconventional warfare and, and post battle where um, town where French armies in particular are, are marauding and, and plundering. And there's lots of that in the in the, the Spanish the Spanish case. 
Um, but in terms of conventional sieges and exemplary punishment, um, no, that's that's and and of course in the case of Spain, that's that's not what's transpiring with civilians. There's no exemplary punishment aspect whatsoever. In fact, if there was to be any exemplary punishment, it would have been um, with the with the French garrisons, and there's nothing of the sort. And that is in fact something that a number of more hardline officers question. So the British sieges in the peninsula aren't really part of that conventional uh, sack. Uh, in terms of deterrence for future towns to surrender, unless you're then going to try to encourage uh, Spanish municipal bodies to then really put pressure on the French garrisons to uh, to force them to to surrender, which was highly which was highly unlikely. Um, so it's it's operating in a different in a different way within the within the Peninsula War. Let's stay with that sort of unique aspect of of Peninsula War sieges, um, not least in terms of the the scope for backlash, I guess, um, that that can come out mm-hmm. of an event like this. Um, we'll talk about San Sebastian in a, in a bit um, and sort of save that for a separate thing entirely. Um, but I guess not just in terms of, of consequences, but also operationally and politically. Do they strike you as being markedly different from other sieges of the period? Because the counter argument, I suppose, would be that if you take India, for example, mm. um, and and Seringapatam, there is still a need for the British to the plan is to stay and rule, right? Once yeah. they've they've defeated yeah. um, the the Tipu Sultan, and by sacking the by sacking Seringapatam. That that's not great in terms of hearts and minds and long term control. That's, well, certainly in the short term, you know, there's there's very much a, a reason for the the locals to be hacked off um, with the British mm. on this. Mm. So, uh, do you see kind of similarities in the conversations that happen around sackings? Is there a sense that Surungapatam is okay or it's inevitable? I mean, there's there's also sort of the fatalistic um, inevitability in in some of the comments that are made about the the peninsula war sieges but do you see that commonality or is the way in which people talk about the peninsula war sieges kind of unique in terms of the sack in terms of the atrocities that perpetrated by british soldiers against civilians or the the sack more generally at the expense of spanish civilians the the focus is on well a that it's i mean it's interesting it's one I expected to see more of a focus on the fact that these were allies and we're meant to be liberating them. That's there to some, that discourse is there to some extent. But what struck me more was just a discourse that these are civilians regardless and they are innocent um, in terms of combatant status. And therefore, although there's, and we can talk about this, there's, you know, there's a challenge to that. There are certain British narratives at both Badajoz and San Sebastian that challenge the, the notion of innocent civilians within those. They're politicised for various reasons, and that feeds back into various British attitudes and prejudices towards the Spanish peoples more generally. And that, um, But it, it, it struck me that I, I expected to see slightly more of the repugnance and horror on the part of British officers and British rankers in both memoirs and letters about the fact that these were um, uh, allies of the British, that the British were meant to be liberating. And as I said, whilst you see some of that, 
there's not as much as I expected to see. There was much of a much stronger focus on these are civilians per se, on their civilian status, um, and that this this growing moral, sentimental, humanitarian discourse around the the fact that this is increasingly seen as illegitimate violence in these discourses rather than the customary right to um, to plunder and uh, to commit atrocities against against civilians. Uh, Seringa Patam, the British sources, uh, there's, again, there's always there's always a sense of inevitability that it's almost a natural force that's largely outside of the control of of officers and and commanders that it's that is going to happen, and the best that can be done is to is to manage that, and that's certainly my argument with respect to to Wellington. Um, and then you see a growing encroachment of the military justice system into the space of SAC, particularly in the Peninsula War, but you also see that in India. So there are parallels uh, in that sense, both with India and, um, and Spain, that um, by the time we get to Wellington in the Maratha War in 1803 at Gawilga, for example, he, at that siege, he issues very clear instructions that there should not be any plunder um, and I think that's part of the legacy of what has what he's learnt from from Seringa Patam. Um, as I say in the book, that seems to go missing at at Cerro Rodrigo, and we're starting all over again. And there's another clear, um, I think, learning curve and a growing um, sense of the military justice system encroaching into the space of of SAC in in Spain too. Um, so the Peninsula War sieges more generally, though, one of the, of course, all sieges share, all regular sieges share a common operation within variations. They share a common operational, common operational characteristics. They all share the same broad laws of war, at least amongst uh, European belligerents. Um, but certainly the sheer number of sieges that we've got, regular sieges in the Peninsula, the primacy that's placed on fortresses in the peninsula, particularly Badajoz and Ciudad Rodrigo, is the you know the famous gateways to Spain. The way in which, uh, particularly from the French, um, and particularly with uh, with Suchet in the east, how sieges operate in conjunction with broader pacification processes, so control of the cities, and then broader pacification processes and counterinsurgency against guerrillas. And the, just the general, the sheer length of the war in the peninsula, the complexity of the number of actors, um, the sustained brutality that you get in the peninsula for such a long, a long period of time, that shapes the nature of the, the sieges to a degree there. There are a few things that you, you mentioned there that... Um that i am going to rabbit hole on apologies folks but they're they're just so interesting you talked about sort of the humanity aspect and it strikes me that this is a, an ongoing struggle in in spain and portugal this idea that no you can't go and plunder the locals um and there are a whole raft of reasons from that wellington doesn't want to be on the receiving end of the counterinsurgency that the the french are on the receiving end of um, there's also sort of the moral element, there's the discipline element, 
Um, sometimes there's also a lack of understanding of the privations that the troops are suffering and the, some of the motivations for plunder. Do you think it's yeah. all part of the same conversation or do you think that the sieges sort of end up being a focal point because they are everything sort of so concentrated, so obvious and so much more violent and, and ends up being sort of that much more visible because of it? Yes, so it is. It is a is a much more concentrated microcosm, and so we can see clear links between troop behaviour within those siege environments and troop and British troop behaviour across the peninsula more generally. As I say in the book, British British attitudes towards civilians or uh, prejudices don't end at the at the at the town at the town walls. So there's, if we look at plunder more generally, there are clear links, there are clear commonalities in terms of practices. But the key distinction, I would argue there, is that plunder within a siege environment is legitimised under customary laws of war. And plunder throughout the rest of the peninsula is not legitimised. It is, in fact, outlawed under criminal, under military, military law. There's no customary right to plunder um, uh, and it's punishable under under the Articles of War. But once we move into the 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 siege environment, suddenly we're, we're moving into a different space in that sense that it's under customary laws of war, which are not identical to military law. And so that's where you get the tension. And 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 uh, Graham at at San Sebastian when he's corresponding with Wellington about the. The, the challenges of trying to manage it says that I wish we had a different military law system where we could punish under prevailing military law the the um, the uh, the offenders. And so I think we're seeing a tension, a very clear tension between that in both India and Spain, and a growing encroachment with the, as you would know, with the provosts coming in. Um, to to um, to address the issue, but you had the customary right, and as you say, soldiers saw this as a as a right um, of theirs to take certainly to take to take plunder and to sack to sack the city. So it's that it's that tension between grow, growing humanitarianism, um, growing sentimental culture, a growing sense of empathy. Um, a growing sense of understanding, feeling, and, and suffering, but on the other hand, the that customary right to to plunder a storm town. Just to give folks a sense of the degree of that entitlement, I believe it's William Lawrence who writes in his memoir, uh, very candidly, about how he and his colleagues are actively planning, basically, a crime spree once they get through the breaches. Um, so they've been in the town. Uh, previously, uh, having been quartered there uh, in the aftermath of the Talavera campaign, which therefore means they know the lay of the land. They therefore mm. know where the silversmiths are. And their plan is, right, person X is going to bring a candle. You're going to bring something heavy to bash down the door. Um, and collectively, we're going to, this is where we're going to go. This is the plan. So they, they have this sense of, no, this is absolutely fine. Not only yes. to go and mention it in a memoir afterwards, which is really interesting, and there are all kinds of interesting questions actually about the degrees to which things are or are not said. So I have theories about what Costello does and doesn't refer to um, that are incredibly grim 
in terms of the the suffering of civilians. Um, but there, there is this belief that no, this is fine. You know, they can have these conversations amongst their colleagues, and everyone's in on the plan. And that tells you a heck of a lot about this sense that there is this belief that that's okay. The thing that really struck me though was when you were talking about the encroachment of military justice into all of this, because it was Badahoff that got me into crime and punishment in the first place, and it was the the absence of um official means and and judicial means fundamentally of dealing mm. with the aftermath of, of Badahoff that really shocked me uh, properly a sort of sit back and what the hell's going on here moment um that you uh, very occasionally get in the archives but as you say when it gets to San Sebastian uh, there's there, there are efforts in Badahoff aren't they you know the provost are sent in famously um I've never really been able to track whether or not somebody is actually hung for it because you have the accounts that say that that was the case and yet yeah. that doesn't seem to quite tally up with with some of the other records but for yeah. me it's always felt and I, I wonder what your um sense of this is but it feels as though san sebastian is about trying to learn the lessons of badahoff so whether that's having um they have a, a court martial sitting i believe it's a drumhead court martial that sits all the way through and they do actually punish um they don't punish many it's worth saying but they do punish do you get that sense that san sebastian sort of it's the the logical progression of the learning curve yes i do i do and i think the controversy as well around san sebastian allows us to scrutinize what transpired there with british measures because that was part of the the, the british defense in in light of you know accusations of deliberately burning burning the town um, but yes, absolutely. There's a there's a much stronger vigilance, I think, over over San Sebastian. Wellington is issuing clear instructions. There are clear instructions given to the troops before before the storming. Uh, you have the the provost ready to go in almost immediately. There's already a sense that because because of troops. And this is one of the interesting things about SAC. It's not just the troops that storm, but it's troops just coming in after the storm that were not part of the storming operation. There's a much clearer sense of sealing this off, that you're not going to have what transpired at Badajoz, where you've just got regiments falling in, or later, you know, the Portuguese brigade also getting involved in, in, um, in, um, in what transpired. So, yes, there's, there is that. Um, and, and that's despite the fact that you've got much more challenging conditions in trying to manage SAC within San Sebastian. You've got a, a, an extraordinary firestorm and you've still got the French, the French garrison in the citadel with artillery. So it's, it's much more challenging to, to manage the, 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 the SAC, but the evidence from you know, the detailed evidence from Hayes' report and from other from other accounts, is that this is certainly the most concerted effort on the part of of um, the British Army to to manage SAC. There are two and ways we can go. A lot of sorry, and a lot of confiscation of plunder within within the town. By, yeah, by I mean that that's an interesting one in itself because. Obviously, San Sebastian 1813, it comes in the wake of Victoria as well. Yeah, um, yes. Wellington not being happy about not getting his hands 
on the baggage train because he wants to use the treasury to then finance the army. Um, mm. So, and there are accounts in the wake of Vittoria of the packs being searched and some members of the rank and file being absolutely furious. They feel like this is a breach of contract almost, you know, a deprivation of one of their rights that mm. I was at the battle. I did my bit. I then took what I saw and now you're taking that off of me. Um, mm. Do you do you think there's a, a direct line between the post Victoria and what happens at San Sebastian? Is there this sort of sense of we are now coming down hard on this idea that you perhaps might take the odd thing? You're not going to systematically scoop everything up in your arms and and walk away with it. Is, is there this sort of culture shift that's happening finally? Um, and and equally, I, I have a, another question about whether or not Badahop is sort of um is something that catches people by surprise uh, perhaps we'll we'll save the bad half bit for, for a, yeah. a, a second yeah, no, question I think, but... I think that, yeah i think that's a really important point zach uh, that i think and i'd, I'd like to talk about i think bad does take um certainly wellington by by surprise and the and the high the high command it's an interesting point about Victoria. I think there is a, I think there is a, a link. I mean, we've got we've got classic examples throughout the whole of the war, um, but at, at, at say the march to La Coruña and what what transpires after Talavera, and then the the march back from Burgos and the retreat from Madrid. There's 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 extraordinary uh, circumstances around those, but at, at at Vittoria, it's you know classic attacking the baggage train and the you know the 18th Hussars being being particularly singled out. So yes, I do think that's another um, another factor in um, in adding a, a greater sense of vigilance with respect to um, uh, getting as much of the plunder back as 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 possible. Um, there had there are stories in some accounts. There are stories of plunder being confiscated and indeed being burnt uh, by officers in camps outside Badajoz. Um, I'm trying to think of which account. I'm, I'm not sure it's George Simmons, but there are some there are some accounts where there's not much. It's just a sentence or two where there's there is uh, whether there, there is that. And at Montevideo um, as well, British officers there are confiscating um, the, the relatively little amount of, because there's there's virtually a you know, very minimal amount of plunder at, at Montevideo, which really does set it apart. But the the stories there of officers confiscating the the plunder. So it's it's. In the context of the Peninsular War, yes, I think San Sebastian is the culmination. And what's interesting about that is we've got these three, the three sieges, then the three sacks from you know, January 1812, um, then Badajoz, and then and then finally uh, San Sebastian. So it allows us, in a way, with with the same troops, to explore those changes and continuities over time. So it's a really interesting set of of case studies. What I'm also quite struck by is that tendency to blame the civilians. And I've always wondered how much of that is just sort of a knee-jerk scapegoating exercise, partly because I, I do see a lot of that um, in the sort of the general attitude of, of the British rank and file. And this is one of the things that I've written about in the past, that given an opportunity, 
blame the Portuguese or blame the Spanish. And, and a, a lot will depend on whether or not um, you've seen the Portuguese fighting. A lot depends also on underlying prejudices that you've talked about um, in your book. But when it comes to particularly Badajoz and San Sebastian, there are these rumours that circulate that, well, part of the problem actually was the Spanish locals who just wandered into the town and took what they wanted. You know, they were as culpable as we were. What's your reading of that? Um, certainly that in terms of Spanish civilians coming in and, yeah. and, and blundering, uh, certainly there is some, there's, there's some evidence of that and that it's, that there, that there is a, um, a plunder economy to use John Lynn's uh, phrase that's, that's operating there and that other, other communities uh, do in fact benefit to a degree from from what what transpires in terms of the circulation of goods, because they are a whole, they are British soldiers are holding auctions, and they're not just being bought by other other soldiers. There are there are there are locals, so it is it is operating at that at that level. But I think that certainly the British make uh, they certainly emphasise that point when they when they can, um, and also that. Portuguese soldiers or Spanish soldiers or indeed French soldiers purportedly taking them around at Badajoz to show them the best and said Rodrigo the best the best plunder the best plunder spots we we straight a long way from what I planned to ask you so I, I'm going to sort of flick back to um to some of the the original questions that I'd planned um and just sort of talk more generally about See, just because I, I I am conscious that we, we've talked about how a lot of this is more about the, the sort of the emotional and the legal and moral aspects that that, mm -hmm. that you've written about in this book, but a lot of my listeners will also be interested in that operational side, and there is this ongoing sort of debate, and it's something that um, folks are, are writing about as we speak um, mm. in terms of Wellington and sieges and whether or not. Wellington does sieges badly. Um, my mm. personal view is that yes is is the bottom line with that. Theodore Rodrigo perhaps being the exception, um, but certainly when you yeah. look at Badahoff, the multiple attempts to take Badahoff, part of that's about lack of resources. Part of that is about yeah. um, bad planning, in in my opinion. Burgos, very obvious case of a, a siege that goes badly. Um, San Sebastian gets interrupted, so that's a harder one perhaps to to judge. But mm. there is this, uh, you're the expert on this, you've, you've looked at a number of sieges. Uh, do you get the sense that it's the British in general that do sieges badly? Is it just that sieges are very hard to conduct during this period? Um, or is, is this something unique to Wellington? You know, Wellington just doesn't have an aptitude for sieges that he does in terms of the rest of his battle record. Yeah, it's a tough one because Wellington's record is so strong in every other, in every other area. So it really does sort of, you know, his strengths um, as a commander in so, in so many other contexts perhaps um, shine a, a more disfavourable light on his much more mediocre record with 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 sieges. Um, I mean, I'm not a specialist on the on the operational side, but certainly looking at the at the sieges and having looked at the um, a lot of work on on the siege operations in helping me contextualise what was what was transpiring. Um, 
certainly I think uh, Wellington is not at his best when it comes to comes to sieges. Um, I think that there are a number of mitigating factors, though, and environmental and circumstantial factors around that. But there's a lot of contemporary commentators, including Colonel John T. Jones himself, who doesn't overtly single out Wellington, but rather puts this within much broader historic structural um, limitations on British 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 siege craft, and also the the, um, the the relatively limited resourcing. So the British don't, as as you know, a number of, of of historians have highlighted in the Peninsula War, they don't enjoy the depth and breadth of the French and Engineering Corps. They don't have sat trained sappers. There are problems with ordnance. All that plays out, and then when you consider the relatively vulnerable state of the of the British Army in the Peninsula, that one decisive defeat could be it in a, in, a, in a conventional battle. They don't have the luxury of, of losing multiple multiple battles as the French may have in the peninsula. So the, the, the soldiers, in a way, are much more precious commodity, even though they're going to be used in the in the storming operation. So there's there's a heightened pressure, I think, placed on Wellington as a siege commander within the within the Spanish the Spanish environment. Um, time is always a, an enemy in, in in sieges, but I think even more so for for the British. But there were those circumstantial and, and structural constraints. You don't have a lot of siege experience by the, for the generation that fights in the Peninsula War. The last time the British had been this is not the age of Marlborough. The last time the British had had fought in a continental land based continental siege was. Uh, at Dunkirk and Valencian uh, during year 17 in the early French Revolutionary Wars. And, you know, there are some arguments that the sort of lightning quick approach of, of Wellington's in India doesn't then uh, work particularly well in the, in the Spanish context when you've got more formidable fortresses being defended by European garrisons with, um, with, with, French, with French generals. So it's a it's a it's a combination of 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 factors, and it's going to it's, it continues to be a fascinating debate with the relative service branches, of course, at the time, um, and having their their supporters ever since about blaming with the engineers, the artillerists, the um, uh, Wellington. So it's a it's a it's it that that operational aspect I think is a particularly fascinating one. On the British, the British siege. I mean, no siege is perfect. There are very few siege, sieges that are that are perfect. Um, the Clausewitzian friction always takes over the reality between the theory and 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 uh, the practice of war. But certainly, British sieges in the in the peninsula fall short of a lot of textbook ideals. Um, so, yeah, is that because sieges have become so much harder in the sense that the technology and the the planning of fortifications is so advanced at this point it's it's almost at its pinnacle um i would argue at least until the the development of of more effective means of firing over defenses um is is that part of the problem that you're you're in the sort of almost the post vauban um, era and so therefore yes okay there are variations between fortifications because these are almost organic 
um, forts in that they grow over time and you've got populations that have to live within them and you can't build a perfect fortress on something that was originally designed as a castle and then has developed over the years. Is that part of the problem that actually it's very hard to conduct an inverted commas good siege? In terms of conducting regular regular sieges, and we shouldn't forget that you know a, a great class of regular sieges really hadn't been uh, wasn't really part and parcel of, of European warfare since the since the well really the War of the Austrian Succession um, to some degree in the Seven Years' War, but the, the, there were sieges in the east, but bombardment was becoming increasingly important, and bombardments is becoming more and more important during the, the Napoleonic period as, as well. Uh, but when it came to Spanish sieges, you just couldn't blow in the, the gate as you did in India or go over the walls with an 18-foot ladder. Um, now, Syringapatam is different, but um, it was um, the, Sp the, the Spanish cities were much more challenging. But nevertheless, certainly since for 100 years or more, artillery had had the clear ascendancy over over uh, over fortifications, and it was only a matter of time, generally, when um, a besieging force, all things being equal, and having the right ordnance, would uh, breach breach the walls, and there would be a, there would be a, a surrender. Um, but of course, in Spain, you've got a tradition of popular resistance that really galvanizes um, resistance against the French during the um, during many of the sea, the the, the, the Franco-Spanish sieges of the of the Peninsular War, and the British generally, by the time we get to the Peninsular War, and Jones highlights this, he argues there's a much stronger focus on bombardment. Now that's an interesting aspect, though, of Wellington because he does not support conventional bombardment, um, and that makes him unusual amongst both British commanders um, and French and Prussian and Russian commanders, um, where there's a much more, there's a much greater propensity and willingness to, to bombard, to bombard towns. And sometimes that can be driven purely by circumstance that you don't have the siege train to do that. And you need a very, very fast response um, to a fast solution. Um, but Wellington does not, to, to his credit, um, engage in, in bombardment. How much of that is political and necessity? Sorry, say that again. Oh, and that may be partly because of the, the legacy of Copenhagen as well, that he was present there. Uh, he was against bombardment at, at Copenhagen. He had seen the horrors of bombardment um, and um, certainly um, that I think there's a connection there with what then transpires in the peninsula. That was going to be part of my my follow up question was how much of that is Copenhagen and how much of it is sort of political necessity, i.e. this idea yeah. that we've touched on already that you're meant to be liberating these people. And if you're bombarding the town, then by definition, you are targeting them. And politically, that's just going to be hugely problematic. Yes, that's um, that's absolutely right. Um, having said that, that didn't you know, that didn't prevent the British from. Um, bombarding Flushing. Um, so, but yes, and Wellington highlights this point that um, it's it's counterproductive 
because the French garrisons will simply not uh, surrender in the face of Spanish civilian suffering. It's not going to weigh on their moral on their moral conscience. But yes, there was a an important political aspect to that as well. That um, the bombardment of the, the the systematic indiscriminate bombardment of of Spanish towns was was politically going to cause all sorts of problems. Next up, I want to talk about Napoleon within all of this. Um, because we've talked about sort of conventions and this idea that you once there is a practicable breach, you do the the sensible thing. You don't risk the bloodshed and and everything that that's going to bring, and therefore you agree terms. Now for the British, that there isn't perhaps an easy point of comparison because the the big British siege that where the British are on the receiving end um, that that comes to mind is of course Almeida. You have the the uh, magazine going up um almost within a few hours of them start the french starting the bombardment and and it's very obvious by that point that there's no way that they can fight on so there isn't a choice in that surrender yeah. but do you think there is perhaps a cultural difference because napoleon has a very different stance on all of this you know he's not in favor of surrender unless at least one assault has been beaten off uh, and you talk about something called the cult of obstinacy so to sort of mm. bring all of this together for us and talk us about mm. you know these these different ideas yeah um there is the example there is, there is the british example at tarifa um where they withstand um a they withstand an assault uh with spanish spanish and and british troops and there's a huge argument among with the the within the british high within the british office senior officers there but they do stand the assault the assault there I mean, what struck me looking at the at the sieges many years ago was that there was there were passing references to this regulation of Napoleon's, and so I wanted to really unearth that regulation. And it it comes out. I mean, there's an initial regulation in 1809, but then there's a general regulation to all governors that and and Carnot's treatise that 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 um, supports this that uh, French governors could not surrender unless they had um, withstood at least one general breach assault. Now, there'd also been that ordinance under Louis XIV a century earlier in 1705, but it was never put into effect, certainly within the War of the Spanish Succession, all the sieges that Marlborough's involved in, you don't, you have uh, French garrisons surrendering and a number of historians have highlighted this shift in the late 17th, early 18th century that the older resolve to defend uh, the, a practical breach um, is, uh, is waning. Now, there are some regional differences. Interestingly, within the War of the Spanish Succession, within the Spanish theatre, you still have some famous obstinate defences at Satifa, at Denia, um, at Barcelona in in seventeen in seventeen fourteen, but generally speaking, uh, that that older um, sense that you would defend the breach has largely, certainly within the northern theatres of the the War of the Spanish Succession, it's largely vanishing in the eighteenth century. But then we see it again with it's revitalised with the French revolutionaries, and so it's coming out of. The French Revolution, uh, 
the the republicanism and jacobinism 1792 1794 and then finally we have napoleon um with with this with this in in uh in 1810 and at the one hand we've got french governors of course abiding by this regulation and that they there's the sense that they could be shot if they if they surrender without uh, defending at least one general storm but my going back and looking at the long-term history of this, my argument is that there's a much, there's a, a shift over the course of the 18th century that we don't really see come to fruition until the French Revolution Napoleonic era, because this is we don't get a chance to see this tested um, with respect to um, defending practical breaches. And it's it's based around. Um, a growing sense of the, uh, we need a reinvigoration of military honour, the you know, readings of aristocratic culture, um, degeneracy, that we need a, a, a renewal, part of the military enlightenment. Um, it's, it's bound up with growing sense of patriotic self-sacrifice. Um, and we've also got a number of jurists who, and particularly Emma Vattel in the 1750s, who he singles out that old law of putting a governor to death for defending uh, a breach as completely unjust for someone who has just done their duty. So we can, and, and, and siege manuals over the course of the 18th century continue to have, and um, Vauban himself early on still had um, a model of defending a, a, a practical breach. So all this comes together in that, that, French, that French decision. And also if we look at, um, and it didn't, doesn't have to be just a practical breach where you would take that level of obstinacy to extreme levels um, as the siege of Danzig, uh, which is you know, one of the most horrendous siege experiences of the, of the of the whole Napoleonic Wars. There's no practical breach there because it's not really a regular siege, but the 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 imperial garrison there and the inhabitants of Danzig endure extraordinary circumstances for nearly a year. Um, uh, so yes, it's a complex multi-causal issue, I think. And there is, I think it does transcend it's not. It, it's a. It's. It's not just a, a French phenomenon, although it's. It's. It's most articulated because it's regulated by Napoleon. Um, but I think if we had British troops in more defensive situations, we would see a similar level of of, of obstinacy. And I certainly think that also plays a part in why British soldiers show quarter towards French soldiers in those with those garrisons. Um, but that doesn't apply when they're dealing with Spanish garrisons in Montevideo or Indian garrisons in Srinagar and um, Gawilga. On sort of cultural differences, are there different expectations on each side in India, or are they all kind of working around similar ideals? I'm just wondering if there is sort of there's a cultural disconnect, and whether the British operate under one sort of way of thinking and, and actually there's a very different um set of ideas going on in, in the indian camp well there are examples for example um in at both Sringapatam and Gwilga of soldiers but also civilians um because they're fearful of 
being executed or the of, of a sack of uh, throwing themselves off the the walls into into canal canals uh, at, at Seringapatam at Gawilga as well throwing themselves over over the cliffs um, and you know, uh, examples of um, civilians being killed at the hands of well in, in in terms of British reports of civilians being killed at the hands of of Indian soldiers to uh, spare them the 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 fear of um, of uh, being raped um, and murdered uh, at the hands of at the hands of British soldiers, but there's certainly much more of a cultural disconnect uh, in the in the context of of the of the sieges in in India. Um, much much greater calibration and sense of reciprocity and a common language of war uh, with what's transpiring in the peninsula, but in India that um, there's a there's much greater friction. Uh, and mis misunderstanding there based on on cultural difference. One of the things I want to do at this point is just sort of start diving into some little bits around the three big Peninsular War sieges um, and talking about specific aspects of them. One of the things that you um, have emphasised quite a bit in, in your work is um, sort of emotions and sensory overload, most obviously at Badahoff, because Badahoff almost feels unique in terms of the gore element. I mean, fundamentally, the the main assault fails, right? And it's it's the secondary assaults that end up carrying through, you know, the diversionary attacks that end up being pursued um, mm. almost sort of by chance as much as anything else. Um, and that it, this is what often gets mentioned, uh, isn't it? When people talk about the sackings in the aftermath that, well, think about what they've been through Therefore, it was a given that this was going to happen. Um, just talk us through what what you've kind of written about emotions and sensory overload and, and the influence that has on what happens at Badahoff. Mm. So, yes, I, there, I, I do spend quite a bit of time looking at soldiers' emotions because they are they're front and centre, really, within their own accounts. These are highly emotive accounts. These are extreme emotions of war that we see being articulated by by soldiers, both privately and within within you know later published published memoirs, and it's a complex play of emotions that's in, that's in place, and it it does start off very much with with the with the storms, and I, I use the phrase storm of emotions in the in the book, and there is a, a great deal of of conflicted emotion with the storming operations between a, a sense of excitement and, and adrenaline and the thrill, but also a profound sense that comes across in some writings more so than others. It's not something that some uh, that uh, that Kincaid's going to highlight because he's you know he's he's much more into sort of stoic masculine forms of martial identity. But there are others where it's it's very clear that they are uh, that they are dealing with fear and it's how they're trying to manage that fear. So extraordinary sense of of fear about what is going to transpire. Now, once you've got the soldiers passing through the breaches, the conventional understanding, and this certainly is an important factor, is the, the cathartic nature of that experience of passing through the threshold um, of, of both a sense of liberation, but also soldiers carrying the extraordinary trauma and fear of what they've just experienced and seeing of surviving, but also seeing so many of their, their comrades slaughtered in the, in the breaches. But that sense of cathartic release and venting uh, 
and a sense of, of rage, a sense of vengeance uh, being, being very much there. Um, having said that, what I also argue in the book is that that focus on a cathartic release whilst it's important in understanding some of the violence of the sack and the plunder, that it only takes us so far, because if we look at the sacks in more detail, there's, there's a control and management of that emotion as well. For a start, there's not indiscriminate violence. French soldiers, for example, are not set upon. And that's a consistent pattern. Whatever we argue about the sort of operational slight differences between, between the various three sieges, there's a broadly consistent pattern there. There is some suggestion that some French soldiers are killed in the castle at Badajoz, but that's an extraordinary situation in terms of the confined nature of the space. But you don't have a systematic um, withdrawal of quarter uh, during the fighting or immediately after at any, of those, at any of those sieges. But you do have an emotional release being vented against Spanish civilians. So there's a clear application of that of that violence about who's spared and who's not restraint in some important spheres and a lack of restraint in others um there's and there's also the fact that the, the sacks last two or three days they don't just they, it's not just one huge emotion emotive explosion that has to dissipate in time and you've also got soldiers that aren't involved in the storms, also later participating in, in the sacks. So when you've got a sack that's going for two or three days, that, that hot-blooded, emotional, transformative notion of an out-of-body experience early on, that only gets you so far. And you begin to look more at rational, instrumental behaviour and practices within within the sacks, and I've talked about the sort of highly ritualized nature of plunder sacks that, um, you know, that starts from, you mentioned Lawrence and the planning about what shops they're going to target. That's got nothing to do with their emotional response of, of coming through the breaches. It's clearly calculated beforehand. So too that there may be some payback against former hosts in Badajoz who, show, who were not particularly hospitable. So there's a calculated rational application of violence that's being planned even before the sieges, the, 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 the storms commence. Um, and I guess the other thing about the emotional aspect of those, the storms and how they play out in soldiers' accounts is it's not just the darker emotions of war, as some historians have have, have coined the phrase, but within those very same accounts, we also find amongst British soldiers a sense of compassion, a sense of empathy, a sense of shame, a, a sense of humanity that coexists alongside the violence that's being, and, and plunder that's being perpetrated. So it's a, it's a highly volatile emotional space it's a highly complex emotional space that i think highlights the tension between that customary right to sack a town and a growing sentimental and moral um, um sentimental moral concerns and also soldiers very much in this period in the early 19th late 18th early 19th century being very much influenced by 
sentimental culture, including, including rank and file. Wildly conflicting emotions that I think highlights, that really captures in a sense the emotional truth about um, the sacks themselves, that it's they're caught between the old customary laws of, of war and older traditions and a growing moral humanitarian sensibility that horror i mean we shouldn't forget the, the emotion of horror here the horrific reactions to the sights and sounds that they are that they are experiencing and witnessing the, the focus on the witness the soldier as witness here um and uh atrocities perpetrated by one's own you you touch on something there which is has always been really striking and it's sort of the great disconnect and you you framed it really nicely there in terms of there's as you say it, it's not the french who end up taking the brunt of this it's the civilians the spanish civilians the allies fundamentally um and it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier in the xenophobia that um i see a, a huge amount of um in in soldiers memoirs do you think that it that is part of what plays into this, this sense that the French are seen as almost an inverted commas honourable enemy and honourable people. Culturally, they're seen as more similar to the British, which in turn is ironic because the developments of nationalism and national identity are, are starting to crystallise around this idea, well, we're not French, that's how we're going to define ourselves. Just, you know, read, read your Linda Colley. Um, but for the Spanish, there is this sort of and the Portuguese, the, the comments that are made, are, these are backward people, these are dirty, they're lazy. Um, is that part of what's going on here, that while the French soldier doing their job as you know somebody who I can culturally identify with is an individual that I'm not inclined to go and bayonet uh, at will, whereas the Spanish civilian trying to defend their house, well, uh, I've got no interest in you, you're sort of, I, I consider you to be culturally inferior to me. Is that part of what you think might be playing into this, those sort of deep-set prejudices that then bubble to the fore at times like this? Yes, I, I, I certainly think that's a, that's a factor that lowers the uh, the level of restraint on the part of soul on the part of British soldiers towards the civilians that they're confronting, and so that's 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 part of the broader experience of British soldiers in the peninsula, where there's a sort of enlightened conceit that they are uh, culturally politically, economically, and socially superior to the Portuguese in particular, um, but also but also the Spanish. And there's a sort of patronising approach to the Portuguese, almost as if they're sepoys that are being deployed uh, with, 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 with the British, that they're being trained by the British, that the British will, will instill martial courage and, and, and heroism and instill discipline within, within Portuguese soldiers. Um, but I, I certainly think that plays out. Um, religious prejudice, uh, certainly amongst Protestant soldiers within the British Army against um, Catholic, Spanish and, and Portuguese, um, and also a sense, particularly with the Spanish, that there's a when soldiers get into Spain, there's a dis sense of disillusionment. Where are these patriotic Spaniards that have appeared in the press at home that we've heard about uh, at, uh, at Saragossa? Uh, and elsewhere, where where are these patriotic Spaniards in terms of the Talavera campaign? And, and I think that plays out certainly with with Badajoz. Um, 
so there's that sense of, uh, of, of, of are these people worthy of our own sacrifices? And, and of course, that then is even, so there's always that British soldiers, but I think that's even doubly so given the sacrifice in the storming operation. So I think that that can play out there as well. But yes, I think the general level of prejudice and general lack of respect for the Spanish peoples, notwithstanding romanticization and you know, the exoticization of the Spanish and positive affirmation of certain qualities, but overall, generally, um, a, a rather negative and critical portrayal and stereotyping of, of the Spanish inhabitants, I think that does, that does not necessarily dehumanise, but certainly lowers, um, lowers the threshold level for violence and plunder in, in British soldiers' eyes with respect to Spanish civilians. At this point, I'm going to be a really bad podcast host and double back to some themes that you've been raising over the course of this and, and just sort of tease out some follow-up questions because they are so interesting. And I, I don't think my listeners will forgive me if I, I don't do a thorough job on, on this. Um, you talked about how, in some respects, the aftermath of sieges has been ever so slightly sort of overstated. There is this sort of tendency to um, almost elevate these aftermaths to being head and shoulders above anything else that happens um, in, in siegecraft during this period. And an example of this was um, put to me very, very early in my PhD process, where somebody was a well-respected um, historian had mentioned the figure of 4,000 um, individuals being slaughtered, 4,000 civilians being slaughtered at Badahoff. Um, mm. And that figure is, I'm sorry to say, just plain wrong. I don't know where the original sources for that came from but if you look at the diocesan archives in Badahoff there there are a long way short of 4,000 people in the town at the point at which the British start the encirclement process and then some leave beyond that so there's no way that that happened um do you think and this is a dangerous question because uh, it, neither of us are trying to trivialize what happened in these sieges mm. and, and let's be clear on that and neither are apologizing for that and saying that it was okay but do you think that the scale of this has been overstated and what do you think uh, might be the reasons for that if that is the case i think it has been i think it has been overstated and i think there's a lot you know, a number of factors we could highlight there um one the sense that um sacks are always similar in that that you've got mass mass indiscriminate atrocities committed when uh, sacks do take place, and of course at both Badhaus and San Sebastian, you've got sacks that go for two for two or three days. You particularly with San Sebastian, you have the, the all the polemics around San Sebastian and different narratives from the from the British and Spanish perspectives. Um, but British British memoirs themselves. And British 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 uh, letters at the time um, uh, play into this with a sense of sensory overload that no one's quite sure just how many. There's a sense of of universal horror of universal of universal slaughter. I mean, no one ever comes up with a figure. I think Tompkinson has a you know has a figure for his. I think he's the only 
offhand, the only one I can remember, who, a contemporary soldier who actually comes up with a with a with a with a figure, but how the figures are, are arrived at is 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 often very difficult to it's very difficult to trace the genealogy of those of those figures, and often they can then be repeated, um, but not but not uh, not examined, and certainly the as you say the the dicey archives in Barajas certainly don't indicate that that number of of deaths and it's always very difficult um we, we, particularly in sieges where where there's a storming operation you don't know it's very difficult to get clear clear figures on the number of inhabitants in the town to begin with let alone those who are there at the storming operation and with something like san sebastian in particular it is extremely difficult to then try and to distinguish amongst the different sources of fatality with civilians um, in terms of the fires, bombardment, um, the actions coming during the storming operation itself. But certainly I think um, the some soldiers in terms of Gothic writing, in terms of what what the multiple motives they have around writing about the siege in particular ways they're often uh, and for example you know you've got these hyperbolic statements around this is the worst sack since Jerusalem or using biblical biblical language the case of Herod and the massacre of the innocents uh, Shawman famously talking about San Sebastian as, as, as being worse. What transpires at, at, at San Sebastian is an absolute tragedy. Um, but the sack itself, in terms of the loss of life, is certainly not comparable to what transpires at, um, at, uh, at Magdeburg. Notwithstanding the violence and notwithstanding the, the extraordinary suffering that uh, Spanish civilians endure at the hands of British soldiers, there's another side to those to those sacks that that also highlights a growing moral and humanitarian revulsion about those practices at within the very army responsible for those atrocities. How much of that is also informed? Actually, sorry, before I ask that, I'm just going to give folks some some details on the figures because I know people will just ask me about this afterwards. So the diocesan archives indicate. And what happened was a priest physically went round providing street, house number, and names of victims. Um, they're not comprehensive because uh, Santa Domingo Parish in the west of Badhoff isn't included in these details, but he totals up 102 dead, 23 mortally wounded, and 83 seriously injured. Um, so that's probably talking about a civilian casualty rate of something in the region of 16%. Still awful, but a hell of a long way from the 4,000 that others have bandied around previously um but i i'm curious about um within this revulsion how much of a, an awareness is there of what we now think of as sort of the, the classic scenes out of goya's horrors of war um mm. that the british have seen french atrocity as they've moved through portugal in the wake of Massena's retreat in 1811 and there's very obvious revulsion at that and it's very easy for the British to create a sort of cosy little picture of themselves as liberators of Portugal, liberators of Spain. We are, inverted commas, the good guys in this conflict. We'd never debase ourselves to do something so cruel. And yet, mm. 
come mm. Theodore and Rodrigo, particularly Badahoff, actually they're slapped in the face with an indication that actually, no, you're just as culpable and capable of these kinds of crimes. How much of that do you think plays into what we see in, in the, the memoirs particularly? I think it's enormously significant. Um, I mean, it's often... The, the 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 idea of desensitization as a as a crucial aspect of what transpires within those towns but what i also see with certainly within uh, written accounts is 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 a continued sensitivity um and um a a um a sense that first and foremost these are atrocities perpetrated by our own and that's a very different framework, uh, because until then, soldiers, yes, they'd seen plunder on their own, and they participated actively participated in plunder. But the atrocities uh, they'd always seen uh, relatively from a distance as being perpetrated by the French. They were often there after the fact. They came upon um, the the bodies. They saw the mutilation, but it was. Uh, by the French, then once they uh, get into, once we once we get to Badajoz and San Sebastian, they are uh, atrocities being committed by one's own. So that adds an added um, dimension to the sense of horror and repugnance, and and fundamentally uh, a sense of shame and disgrace, a sense of shame that is there is 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 articulated at the time that sense of disgrace and and shame by a number of officers and um and certainly it's articulated in in memoirs rankers after the after the war gavin you've been brilliant and very patient with all of my sort of awkward and needly little questions the whole way through this um, I, I just have one final question, and it's, uh, as I wrote it, I thought that's a horrendous question to put to anybody. Um, but it is one that fascinates me, and it ties into what we've been talking about, you know, these ideas of xenophobia, of revulsion, of are we better than the French and all the rest of it. In a, And this is speculative, of, of course it is, but in a hypothetical scenario where the British end up having to besiege a French town, you know, let's say that Toulouse has fortifications, for example, in the British do end up prosecuting a siege and storming it. Do you think mm. things would have been different? And if so, what's your sense of why they might have been different? Is that a result of the progression that we see through to San Sebastian of um, a more thorough series of measures to control discipline amongst the troops to prevent this kind of thing? Or is or would kind of cultural differences uh, or rather sort of perceived cultural similarities have played a role because equally the French are in better commas the enemy and yet it's very striking that the British seem to have generally been fairly well behaved in France um there are exceptions of course there are but generally yeah. speaking Wellington's measures on, from various uh, avenues seem to sort of coalesce when it comes to the invasion of France to keep a lid on sort of the discipline problem Yes, yeah. I think you've touched on it all wonderfully well there, Zach. I think my, um, the conclusions from my book, and it's a wonderful speculative question, it's one that I I, I have thought about, and I, the conclusions of my book would be all things being equal operationally, 
that there would be less violence against French French civilians. There would be violence, but I would argue there'd be less violence precisely because of those because of those factors. That there's a there's a a sense with with French civilians. There may well, as a consequence of being in stronger um, uh, focus on the orders from the from the outset uh, through the through uh, the storming operation and its and its aftermath um but there still would have been violence I mean Graham in the in his correspondence with Wellington about the the challenges of managing SAC or the inevitability of SAC argued that um if hypothetically the French had taken Dover and we had to take that in a siege British soldiers would still have plundered Dover um uh now whether they would have committed you know and and there would have probably been a little bit of violence but it would certainly would have been less than if they you know been against a french a french town i mean another interesting thing about that too is in a way i think the fact that you had spanish the spanish in particularly in Badajoz and san sebastian being read as somehow collaborators that they had compromised their for some in some dis, some British discourses, you're not you're simply not going to get that with the French with the French civilian population with the French, French with the French garrison, um, but it is a it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting question. Thankfully, it never happened. Um, uh, but my conclusions would be the cultural the cultural um, and the the far greater othering of Spanish civilians. Uh, is a is a is a factor there, and I think there are higher thresholds of um, of, of restraint with respect to French, French civilians, all things being equal operationally, than uh, what you get with Spanish Spanish civilians in town in Spain. Gavin, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion folks there are two books that you need to go and buy the british soldier in the peninsular war encounters with spain and portugal 1808 to 1814 i suspect we might sit down and have a follow-up chat about that because there's there's so much to talk about there um but equally the one we've been talking about today storm and sack british sieges violence and the laws of war in the napoleonic era 1799 to 1815 uh, that one's from Cambridge University Press. The British Soldier in the Plinster War is with Palgrave. Um, I will put links in the, the description. Are you on social media, Gavin, so that people can get in touch or, or do you tend to stay away no, from I'm not. The, the Viper's Nest of Twitter? Um, I, can be, I can be reached through um, University of Tasmania. Um, my email address through there. Okay, so folks, if you've got any questions, the University of Tasmania website will help you out. Gavin, it's I've loved it. Um, I've just had the opportunity to spend an hour and a half nerding out about stuff that I utterly adore. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks so much, Zach. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. If you're a fan of the period, did you know that you can immerse yourself in a Napoleonic Wars pod universe? full of exclusive bonus episodes, a Discord server to chat with the wider Napoleonic enthusiast community. They're a fun bunch, trust me. Plus there are socials, the chance to request episodes, and even a course on the period. Head over to patreon.com, the link's in the description, to find out more. 
Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind that if you want to enjoy the perks of a specific tier, like joining the course, but don't fancy others within a particular tier, you can now edit your pledge to secure individual perks rather than a whole package. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details. Shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches patrons Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell Grieve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Andrew McCall, Arthur Forgy, and the inimitably named Reto the Sci-Fi Fan. The Admirals, that's David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Kate Walcombe, and Steve Carter. The Marshals, that's Ger Brown, Rory Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Stephen Ashworth, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, and J.C. Kaiser. And the Legion de Scholars, Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.